0: Welcome to today's episode of the SASMA podcast. My name is Mignon Russ, an aspiring sports physician and your host for this episode. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Adrian Rutino. So, Dr. Rutino, a qualified sports physician and physiotherapist, is a full-time partner at the Cape Sports Medicine Medical Practice, based at the Sports Science Institute of South Africa. He's the medical director for the UAE Team Emirates Pro Cycling Team, the chief medical officer for the Total Sports to Oceans Marathon, head of medical for the Cape Town Spurs football team, and a consultant race doctor for Absa Cape Epic and other sporting events. His own sporting achievements then also include his South African national and provincial swimming colours. <laughs> Welcome. To the show, Adrian, and thank you for taking the time to meet with me. I know this is an exceptionally busy time with you leading up to Tour de France, but we're really grateful for your time. So, I think today's focus will mainly be on your role as the medical director for UAE Team Emirates. And uh, thanks to the release of the new Netflix docuseries, Tour de France Unchained, I suspect the hype leading up to Tour de France this year will be even greater. So it's great to catch you in South Africa before you jet off again. And I think to start us off, it would be great for listeners just to find out how you got involved in cycling medicine and whether it was always a dream or something that came was quite unexpected for you.
1: So hello, everybody. Thanks for having me on and thanks for inviting me. It's, it's a pleasure to be here and obviously represent SASMA and take it for the podcast. So yeah, for me, cycling was always a sport that I loved ever since being a kid and riding a bike. And then obviously as I got older, I started getting hooked and my first race was the Tour de France where I think I watched three weeks solid and <laughs> failed probably all my school exams at the time and, and just really got hooked on the race and the dynamics and structure of, of that race and what it takes to compete in that race. And then after high school and things, I, I hung up the rugby boots and the body was getting better and bruised and I thought, well, let me start cycling and started doing my own layman weekend warrior kind of stuff. But, and obviously going into sports medicine... And particularly a love for the sport of cycling, I've tried to match the two. And so back in, I think it was 2013, 2014, I, I banged on the door of, of MTM Quebec, and at the time was Dr. John Patricius, who was head of medical at the time. And I literally banged on his door, I think it was his car door actually, and, and I had a chat to him and I just, I asked him if I could just come and, and be part of the squad, or at least do some learning and shadow. And my colleague of mine, Dr. Jared Van Zaden, was, was also heading up the unit at the time at, at MTM Quebec, and went down to a training camp and and just basically joined the team from there. I was fortunate enough to be invited on the staff in the end and, and working in the team environment as a team doctor for a professional cycling team. That t- at the time, they were pro-continental, not in the big leagues yet World Tour, but stayed with them for the time until they became World Tour. Some great successes with that team and they morphed into different iterations from MTN Quebec to Dimension Dayton, etc. Uh, And then, and then, yeah, that's how I sort of cut my teeth in the beginning. And, and then in 2019, we we started up with UAE team Emirates Mm -hmm. and I took over this medical, this is now my second year, from my colleague, Dr. Jordan Swart, who was there previously. And yes, as a unit, we managed a team based out of Cap Sports medicine, but that's the, in a nutshell, how I got into it. Mm -hmm. But I, I literally remember and it was a rainy afternoon and banging on the door (laughs) and just basically begging to, to be let in and. I was very lucky enough to be given the opportunity and taught by good people. And yeah, it was, and the rest, I suppose, is history. But it's I never imagined that one day it would be yeah, the yeah. world to a level this kind, this type. I
0: mean, that's very cool. I and mean, I think that kind of leads into our next question with where you are now. So, what is your role as medical director of Teen UAE?
1: So my role is pretty much a full time job, and trying to balance that with the clinic is often quite tough. So. Sometimes it's late nights, and and with the job goes a lot of travelling, and which often seems quite romantic to 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 most people. But when mm. it's part of your job, it, it loses quite quickly. Yeah. It's more of a job than anything else, but it is part of the job, and you just got to get through and, and get it and get done. But my role effectively is to, I oversee the, I'm responsible at the end of the day for all 30 of our down athletes, plus the staff. Mm. Don't we'll forget that there's also staff entourage and we sort of 120 plus in total. So staff get healed too and have to manage them accordingly and refer as necessary. And that's 24 7, 365. The cycling is a sport that goes from January normally to October. That's the season. So it's a long season. And and we do, we cover approximately 450 race days Mm. per year. So it's more than a race a day. And I have to oversee the medical management on the ground at each race and make sure we've got a full medical team per race, as well as then should something happen at a race, we have to manage that acutely on the scene. If somebody needs surgery or we need scans done, wherever they may be. So that's also developing a network with international doctors, international hospitals, laboratories, et cetera, where we can say, right, he's in, in the middle of Spain. What's the best place you can go to? This hand surgeon there or this knee surgeon on that side. Where's the best place to get a MRI? Sure. All those ins and outs, which you learn over time yeah. and you develop over time. And it's all developing. Right? Yeah. You can never have enough international relations, particularly given where we are in the southern tip of Africa. So geography is always a an issue. So I oversee our medical team, which we consist of seven doctors, but four SA based and three European based. We and then basically we're a multidisciplinary team that I oversee, and that includes and so one half of that is performance, the other half of that is medical. But that, what falls under that is we oversee the nutrition, the biomechanics, and these are all separate departments ended up by by own individuals. But we all talk to each other and make sure that we're all on the same page going forward in addressing specific problems. But look after the rehab team as well. So that includes our physios, osteopaths, our soanias who are basically the backbone of any team. They're worth their weight in gold and there's no way there's a cycling team will take us one And then obviously our strength and conditioning department as well. And then finally our, our mental health component, which is we have a sports neuropsychologist who is part of the team, He we manage the athletes from a mental perspective as well because it is a very taxing sport and in the physical as well. So we make sure that we cover those grounds and, and address any mental health issues that are our guys. And then we do, I oversee the medical testing for the team. So that goes right from pre-season screening in the beginning of a season, that's every year, All the way through and for there, we do internal blood blood controls, so doping controls internally. We also then have to oblige with the obligatory UCI controls, which are the quarterly exams. And then obviously ongoing medical problems as they develop and evolve over the year. We have to do all our health protocols. Obviously all the health protocols that goes from concussion to infection control, heat acclimation, jet lag, you name it. We have to develop protocols because should those things arise, we need to know how to address the problem. And the different thing about cycling, it's not a it's not a geographically accessible sport. In other words, it's not like football or rugby where yeah. you're all based at a stadium. Mm-hmm. You go to the same office, all the athletes live more or less in the same city. You see the guys like you see your colleagues at work every day. Mm-hmm. It's a global sport. And one day you've got a race in Australia, you've got one in, in America, and you've got one in Spain. And you have to try and herd all these cats and mm-hmm. try and say, right, what's going on here? What's going on there? What's the severity? So we need doctors need to race. We need food, medical communication to make sure we know exactly what's going on so we can expedite diagnosis and management and because at the end of the day the it's also sometimes on a one-day race it's like a one day football game or one day rugby game where the player's energy covers off and he hopefully plays next week if we do a grand tour like tour de France I've only got eight riders one group I can't there's no substitutions allowed you have to make sure that guy can ride if he's not ride, you can't ride he's not healthy you've got to make the call and and manage that on the scene and the point is that this race goes on for three weeks it's not just a one day. So there's a lot of, it's a lot it's a lot more different to your regular sports. Mm-hmm. Trying to um, put an umbrella around that, and manage that is, is, it's time yes and it, it takes a lot of, there's a lot of balls in the air pretty much. So that's pretty much in a nutshell my, my responsibility. And then on race day as well, obviously I need to be placed for certain races and that includes obviously their, their nutrition their health, uh, making sure that we address any problems off the go. And then obviously we this all back to management so that mm-hmm. we can say, all right, this ride is not ship to start. We need to bring the substitute here and make sure we've got the supplier so yeah it's pre-race stuff Mm. in-race stuff and then post-race stuff which is yeah it's all different departments that kind of really fall into place
0: and i think it's very clear that it's a lot more than medical and it's a lot of like you say juggling a lot of balls at the same time yeah i think you covered a lot of sort of questions i had not thorough description of it but i think particularly looking at so if you guys prep for a big tour Obviously, you'd have to arrange doctors or divide them amongst the tours. That Those doctors are then, I suppose, the first line and responsible. But for sort of the off-season, does each doctor get a certain number of athletes that they deal with? Or how do you guys arrange that?
1: So, yeah, it's basically, we, at the end of the day, I'm responsible for all yeah. of our athletes. But for, throughout the year, what we do is I, I assign riders to two doctors so each doctor's got about between four and six riders assigned to them and that doctor is the first port of course so whether they're off season on season wherever they are mm-hmm. obviously if they're at a race with a doctor that doctor will manage them whether it's their rider or not but throughout the year 24 7 365 if i've got my six riders they know if something's wrong they communicate directly with that doctor and the same i've got my own six as well seven and but at the end of the day that doctor who's in charge will then report to me and we'll discuss things and make a plan forward. and if they're in need of assistance, if not, they're managing on their own. And our team's grown with some good experience now and real confidence in the guys that they manage things in the ground versus really well. But we're a communic- communicative team. So if there's anybody, any questions or doubts, we have group discussions and, and always come up with a very well-rounded plan possible. But that's how we manage it throughout the year. And then and then once a week, I compile a medical report that we then send to management on each specific rider where they are injury-wise, recovery-wise, rehab-wise, and training prescription-wise in terms of when they can start to, to build up their load again from once they're healthy enough to do so.
0: Okay. And I suppose it's, this is quite a lot different. Like you were saying, it's an ongoing process. It's not one big tour that you deal with. It's constant tours all the time. So what considerations do you need to take like crossing borders with regards to medication, the language barriers is—is is that a big difficulty, or would you say that there's a good system set up for that already?
1: So, always a problem carrying medical med- medicines across borders. And it's, I think it's for all sports and exercise mm-hmm. medicine physicians to to realize this. It's fortunately, my Italian is okay now, so I can. And you pretty much raised a lot in Europe, and with the backbone of Latin languages, you can kind of understand a lot. So my terms of French and and with Dutch and and obviously Italian and get by. But carrying medicines, particularly from another country, is critical that you make sure you've got protocols in place. And one of our protocols is that we've got a complete list of all the medications that we carry, indications why, the reasons why we have these medications, the dosages, the amounts, et cetera. And and it's an official letter from the medical director for myself saying that this doctor has full permission to carry these medications. It is for work obligations in terms of team, et cetera, et cetera. It's all on official letterheads. So there is documentation that is that is signed and stamped and that travels with that doctor. So should there ever be an issue? And certain countries are far more stringent, like Australia, et cetera. I mean, I stopped at the border there for two hours. which I felt like I was on a television program. What <laughs> and, and, and to their credit, they went through every single drug, medication. They checked that it was more legal, they were, they were checked and, and accounted for. And then they brought a second list, which was the world anti-doping the list and they said, Well, these some medications you take, like adrenaline or morphine, where in case there's a resuscitation, etc., these are all banned substances. So you're saying, Well, they, they questioned me, they said, Why have you got these banned substances? Mm-hmm. Again, you, know, you have to say, Well, they are working in a situation in a high risk sport where there could be injury, there could be sudden collapses, etc., and you may need these drugs. It's not for performance, but it's there for life saving. And as long as these are all documented, and at the end of the day, they said, no, fine, all clear, let it go. So it was a life lesson to say, rather make sure you've got proper protocols that that you can carry these medications safely. And in a sport like this, that's been steeped in, in you know, it has a doping culture, and, hopefully, and thankfully that's changed now, but mm. it still obviously happens. You want to make sure that you've documented every single medicine that you've taken. Obviously, that you, in our medical bag we only have pro, no prohibited mm-hmm. one list, obviously, and no performance and enhancing medication either. Uh, and we make sure that list is accounted for and that that doctor has permission to carry those. Because the last one he wants is to, attract any unnecessary attention to a team. And and even though they'll search your bags, and the, the reputation is, is important the score. And the minute you start, there's, there's rumors that teams are getting checked by police and things like that. It's always bad. It's always bad for the team and it's bad for the sport, effectively. So we want to make sure that all our medication is transparent and it's available for border patrols and customs to, to check if they need to and that it's completely up.
0: Yeah, I think this was sort of something I left a little bit later, but you mentioned it now. So like you said, the anti-doping is under such scrutiny in cycling, and it sounds like one of the ways that you guys definitely deal with it is being transparent and having all of your protocols in place. And then you also mentioned uh, pre-screening with the blood testing and so on. Is it the biological passport that they sort of use still in the sport? And I think how do you deal with the pressures from outside with the media and being the medical director or do you just avoid it? And uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, so it's working at this level, you're often in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. You know, and they don't teach you that in medical school. No. I don't think many universities teach you how to cope with that in whatever field you're in. And that's something that I've had to learn with, through experience and messed up a lot and learned about in doing so. My my policy to to press, particularly with the pressures and the questions, like for example, we had one of our big athletes crash a while ago and fracture a bone. The question was, is he going to be able to talk, taking a tour, watch his recovery? Is he going to be able to build up, et cetera, et cetera? And my approach to this is that I stick to facts. I don't get involved in any emotion or the hype or the sensationalism of it. It's more about the, I stick. My job is to stick to the medical facts. My job is to make sure that athlete we have a, a bit, yeah, an accurate diagnosis, we have a proper management plan going forward, and that I can then say this is the problem, this is the management pro- forward plan forward, and this is how we progress. So it's a little bit boring. I think for the, for the press who you, you often want a little bit more juice or substance to their stories. But at the end of the day, and it's my same role on the team, is that I have to listen and obey the medical facts and go according to evidence-based guidelines on how to manage a specific problem. And ultimately, it's the, the rider health is paramount. And we need to make sure that the rider, when they at the start line, is in their healthiest state possible. So I answer what I need to answer and that's it. Otherwise I do try to stay off the limelight as much as I can. But yes, it's a high pressure situation and it calls for quick decisions on the fly. You haven't got, it's not one game again where you can take a go and make a decision later. It's got to be made that night because the next day the race moves on. It doesn't wait for anybody. And at the end of the day, the decision rests with myself and our team and uh, and our medical team. And it's, and again, that's why I have discussions. We have open, it's a very lateralized kind of approach where... We try and involve not and not just the doctors. I mean, we try and involve the our rehab team, our physios, even yeah. our sponsors. Sometimes they know the rider a heck of a lot better than me, yeah. and they spend a lot more time, quality time, as riders. And they may, I may, I rely on them to, to tell me bits of information that are going to help us manage this rider better that, that he may not share with me. So it, it really is you know, the communication is part and of. of or the skill in communication is part of, of developing in, in coping with that pressure It's definitely something that I rely on and that I use quite regularly to communicate mm-hmm. that too.
0: And I think that leads into our next question quite nicely. So cycling is arguably one of the most painful sports, for lack of a better word, and Tour de France must be at the pinnacle of that pain cave that athletes are in. And so what parameters do you actually use for these riders and to monitor their health on and off tour? Because I mean... You're essentially dealing with these superhumans that can feel no pain and push through any form of discomfort and that includes illness. I think you mentioned a little bit about a multidisciplinary approach, but are there other parameters that you are using? How do you go about it?
1: Yeah, so I mean, use a variety of parameters and that's the intrinsic, extrinsic uh, approach, basically. So cycling, it's a numbers crazy sport where, you know, you're molding man with machine and then you through all that inter- interface, you get a whole lot of data. And that's all your physiological parameters, your power outputs, your VO2 maxes, your, your functional thresholds, all of these parameters that we use. So the point is you can analyze a million numbers, but if they're not meaningful and they're not helping you, guiding you and saying, well, if a rider feels X, the plan should be Y. There has to be evidence behind all those things. So we, firstly, we follow mostly evidence or evidence-based approach to these kinds of parameters. And what we've developed now, and we're still developing with our one of our sponsor companies, G42, is that they're doing a... An app for us, which measures it combines all the extrinsic and intrinsic variables that we use, and so so that includes all the subjective stuff. Like from riders, includes their mood, their sleep, their RPE, so the rate of perceived exertions of particular training sessions, their heart rate variabilities, some new devices to monitor those, which automatically upload onto the app, temperatures, sleep regulation, all of those factors that appetite, how they're feeling, what's the, their general feeling after training, before training. It, it combines all that information. And then we look at all the objective parameters and that's hours of training, intensity, the type of thresholds that they're doing, all their powers, functional threshold tests, all those parameters that we use. And the coaches that specifically the performance department will monitor those because they do their weekly mm-hmm. prescriptions. That all gets put into the to the app as well. And basically we, we hope to overlie, superimpose the objective, the subjective parameters. And if they're all moving in the same direction, mm-hmm. you more or less know that riders is, is peaking or building towards a peak. But things like, which we're looking very much into now, is, is sort of heart rate variability. And as, as soon as that starts to, to diminish and we'll go away from their baseline, because everybody's got a different baseline. So we're not doing serial measurements, uh, snapshot measurements, we're doing, we are doing serial measurements. So we understand that rider A has this baseline, rider B has a different baseline, and this is his normal. Then we can start to see, well, hang on a second, a week before a big race, he's feeling a little bit tired, he's reported some fatigue, his heart rate's a little bit higher than expected for this workout. And look, his heart rate variability's gone down. We might say that before he's even feeling sick, We'd say, Oh, hello a second. Let's talk to this writer. Let's see him We'd say, let's get him examined. Let's get him checked out. Is there something cooking? And we may then pick up potential illness prior to that happening and saying, All right, let's intervene now, try and throw the kitchen sink at him in, in, in terms of what we can and what's allowed and say, so, all right, let's get him there. And if we can kind of sidestep an illness and make sure he's still on the start line in a relatively healthy state, then we've won. But at least then and if we don't get him to start line, it's not the end of the day, but at least we've made sure that we don't push him into training and thereby maybe possibly exacerbate the infection or put his organs in danger if he does go and exercise with the virus on board. And and again, it's, it's about monitoring that health, not just to get him to start line, but it's also in the build-up to that and saying, are you healthy enough to build up to that point to that peak? Because you're not healthy enough to build up to that peak. There's no point in pushing and all you're going to do is regress and your recovery is going to be delayed. And potentially do damage and bring you back a month later than you would have originally. So, so we monitor these things quite strictly and we have regular, again, like the backbone of this is communication. The uh, rule of our doctors is that we communicate with our riders at least, at least every two days, just to make sure that you touch base. And then, as I said, we compile a full report every week so that we are staying up to date. Even with the smallest small little niggle, you can say, hang hey, on, this guy got a little something here potentially a tendinopathy starting to brew. And now as the training ramp is, is going up for Tour de France, for example, we need to keep an eye because the middle of the Tour de France, the last thing you want is a pilot. seizing up because you can't put in the biking So here yeah, we use a variety of parameters and then obviously the biochemical stuff, so blood passports. And that we match with the UCI obligatory tests, which are the quantity tests, but we also do our own internal 6 weekly monitoring and those are performance variables that we monitor and we make sure that they are staying within their ranges. Because by now we have serial measurements in each guy, and we know, for example, this is his testosterone to causal ratio, this is, 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 is where his HP should be, is he breaking down the muscle with his creatinine kinase levels more than usual, so that might turn their recovery. So we, we put all those into the pot as well. I mean, a, it's a snapshot view of what we do here, but it's all of those, all that data that's got to come together to a to meaningful point to say, okay, this guy's moving in the right direction. And you know, this guy's going a little bit sunny to actually interview and do something. Mm-hmm. And that again relies on communication from all those departments The like MDT, you know, and again, it's a hell of a lot of WhatsApp groups, oh, which, is, which is not never a good thing, but, but yeah, and you know, we obviously use other communication tools as well, but it just, it just really relies on accurate and expedited communication.
0: Okay. And, you know, I think besides using these parameters, what other precautions do you take, particularly looking at things like infectious illnesses, to prevent those on tour? Because, I mean, you're basically in this bubble for three weeks or ever long. And then once you've picked up that someone's getting ill, what do you do then? How do you approach that?
1: Yeah, so it's always difficult. You think of cycling, it's an outdoor sport. There's lots of ventilation. The risk is quite low. And in fact, when the guys all ride together, firstly, we all travel together, in buses are very close contact. We all say in hotels, are very close contact, et cetera. So within the team, the risk is fairly high, just in terms of infection, passing, passing the viruses on, but also within the race. So obviously there's the race itself, which there's a guy, there's a bunch of to 200 cyclists who are all riding quite close unison. They all start the race very close together. And yes, there's drafts and things, and they're moving at a cracking pace, but the point is that there's a lot of body fluid that goes around in that group. So... Saliva, there's tears, there's sharing of bottles, coughing, spitting, the natural breaks, all these things that happen in the peloton where there's potential spread. So, and that's typical things we look at, or typical virus infections that happen, obviously, or respiratory tract infection, particularly APRA, and then obviously GRT, so acute gastros and things like that, which are not serious diseases, but they're the ones that can seriously dent your performance and particularly take riders out of the team. you've only got eight, you haven't got room for error. So, so we take infection control very seriously, and and then sorry, the, the final thing with the races, and it's not just in the races; it's the fans as well. And as you can see in the turts, these lovely images of guys riding up where they've got a meet on either side of fans, and there's screaming fans, shouting, and there's it's basically a viral bloom going up up to us, for example. And these guys are sucking in air as much as they can because they're obviously pushing their bodies to the limit. So it's great for the sport, but not necessarily great for the athletes in terms of their health. So. And that obviously is unavoidable. But what we do with recording up the bus, we make sure now that we don't do any high fives or touching of hands. When we interview, it's always at a distance. We wear masks. Still, despite COVID not really being around, it's still very much around. But the and the protocols have all sort of waned and are not really a thing anymore. But we're still treating this race as if there's COVID. So we're going to wear ninety-five masks. We're going to social distance, sanitization, all those things, and. What we're trying to do this year is get up on a we pre-sign paraphernalia for the fans so that we don't have to stand there and sign. And if they do, then we stand there, we have our own pens, hand sanitizers, and we sign from a distance with masks all the time. But ab- apart from that, there's not much more that you can do in a race where the fans are so integral and so part of the race. Again, I'll go back to the football game. You've got a stadium that is cordoned off by security. The athletes never go near fans. Even from the transition from the stadium to the bus, it's all and off. They can wave, and they say hello. They may sign a few things, but the interaction with the cyclist and the fan is far more present in your face, and the and the risk of spread. You know, it takes one little bacteria, like a gastro bug, to try to change hands from signing a, an autograph from a child, for example, which is an amazing thing to do, and typical oro fecal transmission, and that spreads to your team, and that's you know, before you know, a week later, everybody's got gastro and no one can perform at that level. So, and that coupled with that is, is that the race is so hard that your the immune systems will start to tank after about a week, 10 days. So the second week is often the hardest and it's always touch and go where you've got to, you're just plugging holes and patching your guys and just saying, listen, and this is when I communicate with management to say this guy put him in the back lid and recover today so that we know that there's two hard stages coming up and we'll try and actively recover him mm-hmm. so that he can then perform in two days a time. Rather than burning him out, and then he's lost to us a few days later. So, so yes, infection control is extremely difficult in the sport, but you have to just try and be as as honest as you can. My OCD just goes through the roof at this race, and so not this health healthy for my mental state, and the doctor comes on and I'm broken at the end of it, but but uh, yeah, my, my role is there is to try and get these eight guys as keep them as yeah, sane as possible.
0: So I think looking specifically at the tour, I mean, you mentioned what your role and so on is, but what would a typical day on tour be like for a team doctor?
1: Yeah. So the tour and any grand tour, I suppose, but it's, you don't get a lot of time to yourself. You need it for many things. And that's, again, part of the job. But yeah, I mean, I'll give you a rough Mm. summary of a day, but so starting at 5am, 5am to 6am is the only hour you get. It's the only hour. So to yourself, so often... If I can, I'm not too broken from the night before, I will get up and at least try and go for a run and get some sanity and some fresh air at the hospital, the yeah, the hotel, and and just be by myself. It's a time where I can try and gather my thoughts and prepare mm-hmm. my day and say like, this is what I need to do. And it's a nice it's a nice time for me because I do I get to think about the things that are priority for that day, and then try and get back by no later than quarter past six, and then anywhere between then and seven, seven thirty, anti-doping surprise anti-doping control officer visits you need to be there so you, you can. You can manage them and wake riders up and stay within the chaperone and then shovel breakfast in if I can. And then, and then head off to do a final ward round, make sure the guys are all okay, new dressings, et cetera. Then we get in the bus and we all travel to where the start may be, and that could be 400 k's away. It could be 10 k's away. We have a sort of pre-race room meeting in the bus and, and then get ready and the guys will get ready. We do final prep work, strapping dressings, et cetera, psychological checks, and then, sorry, before that, I've done all, we do urine, ref- urine refractometry, pre-race weights, et cetera. So we check in weights, hydration stasis before every stage. We do pre, so pre breakfast post breakfast weights. And then, and then the race starts, usually sort of 11, 30, 12, kicks off. And then I'll either be in the bus and go straight to the finish if it's a sprint stage, or sometimes in the car if it's a very difficult technical stage, I'll follow behind the race. And then sometimes in the feed zone, but I'll go ahead of the race. I'll do the, I'll have to soignee with the feed zone. And then after we take a different route, we'll go to the finish. If someone, I'm at the top, I need to obviously be ahead of the race to welcome the riders uh, at the finish. So around five o'clock-ish rolls around, hopefully we get a podium. Mm-hmm. And obviously with a podium, you get control. So it's always that to control, and that often takes a while. Sometimes the riders are quite dehydrated and they can't pee for sometimes two hours. Mm-hmm. So it depends on the riders. Sometimes they like clockwork. And then, and then by the time that's finished, you get in the bus or back in the car. Again, a transfer to another hotel. So anywhere from 1K to 400Ks, get into the hotel. The riders will have massage. i need to do a ward round, check that they're okay. Do a final pharmacy run if I need to for any particular reason. 10 o'clock rolls around, I'll tuck all the riders in bed, read them a story <laughs> and make sure everyone's fine. And then the staff will have dinner. Just after they've all the soigneurs have done their work, the mechanics have done their work, management have done their work, they've prepped for the next day, doctors have done their work. And, and then everybody's got time to say, right, 10 o'clock, more or less, that's when we eat. Normally it's duck in mm-hmm. France. So time three weeks is up. I don't be like, it's see it. Like another duck. In the eye. <laughs> and then, and then if you're lucky, you get to bed by midnight and then try and sleep and then rinse and repeat for three weeks. So it's busy and it's, you get called to the writer's rooms at three in the morning. Someone us got stomach crap, for example, or he's unwell. So you're on call 24-7 and it's a long month because you go there, you start a week before because you need to make sure all the guys are okay. And then there's all the preliminary blood tests we did before the tour to make sure everybody's healthy. So I need to oversee all that. And then the tour starts and then it's three weeks of hard racing. So yeah, much harder for the riders than the staff, of course, but but behind the team, a massive team that are working very hard to make sure the bikes are fine, the bodies are fine, that they've got all their wants and needs, that they've recovered enough, the nutrition is fine, they're getting in all those calories and they burn off, they've got to get it somewhere or another, and and the only waste is orally. So uh, all the different variations of that. So there's just a heck of a lot of work that goes on, and time is the fastest month of the year for me, for sure.
0: Sure. And, and I think if someone told you they don't want an office job, you'll tell them, maybe think again. <laughs> Your office is in the car and on the road. <laughs> Taking an office uh, <laughs> I think I just want to finish off with what is one of the craziest or scariest medical things you've seen on tour? Maybe it's more than one thing. Is there something you can think of?
1: Yeah, so the tour is always, every day you start off with a little bit of angst, unconstitutional about what's today getting up. And like last year's tour was, we just had a really Unlucky health run and we had COVID, we had injuries, we had crashes and things like that. So we, we finished with 50% of the team and the four guys against a very strong opposition team still came second, which is a pretty decent showing. But you know, to finish with half of your troops is difficult. So, so the day, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, it's just, it's putting out fires daily, but I think certain things stick out in my mind. And certainly one of them was at a race and watching the final sprint and the sprint came through with no problems, but there was a post finish line collapse. And, and athletes like this, they're not like lay athletes where a post-finish line collapse. You think, okay, is it more of a postural hypotension, exercise-induced hypertension issue? You don't ever see these riders collapse because they're conditioned that this is their day job. We spend eight hours a day seeing patches. They would spend mm-hmm. eight sure. hours a day on a bike. So they they really are conditioned. So, so you don't ever see that, but you know, What happened was he collapsed completely unconscious, unresponsive and effectively had a complete arrhythmia at the time and uh, we all jumped on. Fortunately, there were a few doctors and there was a paramedic and and an ambulance to the finish. We all jumped on him and reached us for 45, 40 minutes, I think it was, a couple of defibs later. We got him back and, and he's healthy and happy to this day. He's retired now but the point is that the build-up to that was that he'd been unwell and hadn't recovered properly, he'd been training hard. So very likely related to some viral myocarditis of some kind, and, and basically almost cost him his life. And that was a, really, a real wake up call for me. And obviously it was in the midst of COVID as well. And he had COVID a month before that. So he had a severe bronchitis plus COVID a month before that. So racing at this level, where your heart rate is going anywhere between 180 to 110 beats a minute. Good for three, four, five hours when the intensity is big. Those heart muscles take a lot of strain. And so, realizing this, just again, for me, a, a rider's health is absolutely mm-hmm. paramount. And that we need to manage this. And it goes for all sports medicine physicians, so that you, yeah, whatever athlete you're dealing with, managing that, that illness in an appropriate way and, and allowing enough recovery. No matter what the consequences are, no matter the price that they pay of not being in the race or participating in the match, et cetera. And we've seen in football, we've seen those collapses where they, they, those issues haven't been picked up before. And, and if you look back, if all look back through the retrospectroscope and say, oh, but this was the problem, why didn't we act then? It's easy to say, but again, with pressures of teams and sponsors and of the athletes themselves to play the sport that they love, again, it's hard to curb them when they're feeling well. This guy was feeling well, wasn't feeling ill. But it's that build-up that now all the puzzle comes together. You say, actually, hang on a second. That was where the problem was. It's just manifested on that. So, so luckily we got it back and he's fine, but and he's got be back with his healthy family again, thankfully, and uh, he's got a young family. But yeah, so that, that was probably my scariest in the moment. Another thing is I suppose we have had sort of one of our team captains for those who's crashed out of the race early and really does dash your hopes in terms of this was, uh, we we're basing our entire strategy on this guy. It's, you Hearing from the doctor when you're when you management is always bad news. You never want to hear from the doctor. And unfortunately mm-hmm. you have to do a lot of communication at that time and and at the end of the day if your star writer gets called on it. But it's never being a bearer of bad news because that's what you are. If there's no news, it means you you're managing things and everybody's healthy. That's great. But yeah, being the bearer of bad news is, is not a pleasant part of the job, but this is just part of the job. So yeah, that would probably must keep you I'm not sure Nothing's not gonna happen again.
0: No, sure. I mean I think there's so much more to chat about, but we'll probably it there today and you know adrian i just want to thank you so much for this opportunity i'm sure that by the time this podcast is aired tour de france might be already on the go but we really wish you everything of the best and we hope that you and your team have a very yellow tour de france this year and yeah you know, i hope that it's a healthy one mostly for you
1: yeah thank you very much for me health is the yellow yeah so sure. <laughs> but obviously a yellow would be nice to bring home but it's going to be tough this year but yeah we'll give it a full go thanks, thanks for having for me
0: you. thanks Adrian.